All right, we're in the book of Isaiah. We're studying chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're in chapter 21. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, we're going to look at chapters 21 and 22 today. Don't dismay. I will get you home for your Mother's Day activities. So open your Bible, navigate on your device. It's great to follow along for lots of reasons, but mostly I think it's because the Lord wants to speak to you personally out of the text as he shows you insights. The topic we're going to find there, Jerusalem acted just like Babylon, mocking God and reveling when they ought to be repenting. The title of the message, they want to mock the Lord all night and party every day. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we want to approach you in prayer as a sign of humility. We want to put ourselves in submission to you and to your word through which you speak to us. Anything your word says to us, and that you know, we're clear on, Lord, this morning, as you speak to us, we want to do, we want to obey, we want to be pre-submitted to your word, not having to be convinced, Lord, that it's the right thing or anything like that, not arguing with you, but just submitting to your word so that we will have uh, the joy of the Lord as our strength and that we would discover the good works that you have planned for us to uh, do. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and all who agreed said, Amen. Pop culture, pop quiz. Keep this to yourself, but see if you can figure this out. Which of these is not the title of a James Bond movie? No time to die, die another day. For tomorrow we die, live and let die, tomorrow never dies. All right, you ready with your answer? Because the answer is... For tomorrow we die. That is not a Bond movie. It's a partial phrase found in Isaiah 22, verse 13, where it says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We expect unbelievers to mouth these words. Ricky Gervais said, it's a strange myth that atheists have nothing to live for. It's the opposite. We have nothing to die for. We have everything to live for. Believers in Jesus Christ have everything to live for and everything to die for. The Apostle Paul put it this way, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I have everything to live for, but everything to die for. It's troubling, therefore, that it was God's people in Jerusalem who were saying, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, You expect unbelievers to live as if there is no heaven tomorrow. Number two, you expect believers to live as if they will be in heaven today. And so let's take a look at unbelievers and their unbelief in chapter 21. Many ancient cities believed that their wall was impregnable to assault. Clever conquerors always found a way in. Can you say Trojan horse? Right? The uh, walls of Troy. And by the way, has anybody, anybody here graduate from USC? What a terrible name for a football team or a, or a sports program, right? <laughs> We're the Trojans. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you the people who conquered the Trojans while the Trojans were stupid enough to let a horse into their, uh, you know, thing? Uh, no, we're the Trojans. I actually tried to research this, and none of it made any sense. One guy finally said, well, you know, we wanted, they have this spirit of, uh, uh, you know, uh, never giving up. And I go, no, no, that's just the opposite. Then call yourselves the Spartans, you know, but worst name ever. 
You're better off being the banana slugs or something, right? <laughs> Santa Cruz, no, that's the Santa Cruz name. Babylon would find out just how pregnable their mighty wall was one prophesied night. We're picking up Isaiah in the middle of a long stretch of chapters in which God reveals his dealings with certain nations surrounding Israel. Chapter 21 will highlight Babylon and Edom and Arabia. And bear in mind, as we go through this, Isaiah was writing 150 years before Babylon was a world power. So verse 1, the burden against the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. Babylon is identified in verse 9. Wilderness of the sea is a descriptive nickname that it must have had in those days. Differences of opinion on how it actually applies, we really don't need to know, but it is Babylon. Babylon's conquerors compared to a whirlwind, terrible in power and destruction. Some of you undoubtedly have been through hurricanes and cyclones and tornadoes and know the terror of that. We in California know the terror of earthquakes. You know, people from the rest of the country, it's like, oh, you're going to be indoors for how long? Because the earthquake might hit. And I'm thinking, your entire city just got leveled in three minutes uh, by a tornado, and the only thing left standing is a one telephone pole, and you're worried about an earthquake? Anyway, the enemy was going to advance on Babylon. It would seem like a cyclone hit. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O media, all its sighings I have made to cease. Treachery and plundering were the political atmosphere of those centuries. It's like Pirates of the Caribbean when somebody betrays someone else and they simply excuse it by saying, pirate. Only in their day they would say, pagan. Uh, and, and this is just what nations did. Elam is an ancient name for Persia, which is modern Iran. The Medes, or Media, and the Persians, together the Medo-Persians, would conquer Babylon. Verse 3, therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have, I, have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Future Babylon would deserve conquering, but Isaiah was nonetheless overcome with emotion by it. He would not live to see Babylon rise and fall, but the prophecy was so true that he reacted as if he was actually there. Just as an aside, I had a weird thought. I've always figured these prophets, you know, God says, here, I'm going to show you something. It was like a, not that it was a, but like watching a video. Here, here's what's going to happen, uh, you know. But what if it was more like virtual reality? And these prophets are inserted in these visions in some way. Just think about it and let me know what you think. I think it'd be cool. Not with the mat, not with the headpiece, you know, just, you know, God doing it. You don't need your system to do it. Being heavenly minded helps you to see everyone, your enemies, the wicked, in need of God's gracious salvation. It becomes much harder to be offended by someone when I realize that they have no power from God the Holy Spirit to do otherwise. An unbeliever, I mean, they, they don't always act as bad as they could, but they can only act and react as unbelievers. It's not to excuse bad behavior, but you should expect it. Steve Irwin, the, the uh, animal guy, there's a manta ray or some kind of ray, stuck him through the heart, killed him. His family said, well, that ray was just acting like rays. That's what they do. And so, you know, he didn't go on a campaign against rays or anything like that. And so unbelievers, all they can do is, is uh, kill you. 
you know, if they had the chance. And, and so uh, don't be offended. Pray for them, share with them, uh, rise to the occasion in the Holy Spirit. Prepare a table, verse 5, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink. Arise, you princes, anoint the shield. For thus has the Lord said to me, set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. Over a century before it happened, Isaiah saw what is recorded in the fifth chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Medes and the Persians were encamped outside. Warfare in those days was siege warfare, where you just camped around the city and waited for them to run out of resources. Uh, and so they were camped, trusting in their wall. The Babylonians were hosting a drunken feast during which they mocked the God of Israel. The Medes and the Persians altered the course of the river Euphrates that ran under the wall. It was too late to anoint their shields for battle. The sober Medo-Persian army rushed in and overcame what little resistance there was. Ta-ta for now, Babylon. We're introduced to a watchman in verse 6. He was appointed by the Lord. In Isaiah's vision, he was an observer who reported to the Lord. We are watchmen in the sense that we see future history as it will unfold in the unfulfilled prophecies of the Bible. We don't need to witness it to the Lord because he knows that. Uh, we need to witness it to others. We have answers to what's going on right now. You don't have to get super specific, you know, uh, and, and come up with weird theories and say, oh, probably either Zelensky or Putin is the Antichrist. Uh, you know, no, that's weird. But you can say to people, and I, I, I've been saying this, hey, you're never going to understand what's going on over there because part of it is satanic. Part of it is that God is over the nations and the devil is trying to destroy that. Part of it is because Israel is in their land and God, you know, it's getting down to the wire and things like that. And so we are able to report as watchmen what, what we know about future history. And, and we, can, we can tell people history in advance. And uh, it's pretty exciting when you think about it. Verse 7. Uh, he, the watchman, saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. Then he cried, a lion, my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. The language here says that his shout was like a lion roaring. A good watchman needed a strong voice that could be heard and understood. They probably had tryouts for watchmen, right? All right, next. A lion! Next. A lion. Yeah, you're out. You know, you're, you're, you're is that, let's hear that again. A lion. What? I mean, you, you know, you shouldn't be much of a watchman if you didn't have a strong voice. Uh, we should always speak, not necessarily yelling at people, unless, of course, you're, you don't, they don't speak English and somehow speaking English loudly. Have you, I do that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm such a, a goof when it comes to stuff like that. But, you know, overseas and these people, they can't understand. Where is the bathroom? I mean, it's just like, you know, they can't understand you any better because you're yelling at them. The vision of the ugly American is true. I am him. But anyway... <laughs> We need to speak clearly and plainly when we talk about Jesus to others. We don't need to shout at them, of course. I don't think I've ever used this before, but Pastor Chuck Smith would often say, simply teach the word simply. Uh, let the word of God uh, be, be itself and, and have its work. Get it out there. 
Uh, it's not your logic, your wisdom. It's not a particular way you share. Uh, you may have a way that you've developed, you know, but uh, just get the word out there in a simple way. You're not trying to confuse people about the Bible. A watchman is faithful, always stays alert at his post. You can do that. You can be faithful. You're, you're going to fail, but you can attempt it, and, and many times you can be faithful. There are many encouragements to be awake and alert, stay sober in serving the Lord. The watchman saw soldiers, horses, donkeys, camels. Archaeologists have discovered the animals were led by Francis the talking mule. You ever see those movies, Francis the talking mule? Whoa, wait a minute, time out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How about uh, Festus's mule? Anybody know Festus? Gunsmoke? I'm leaving right now. I am so behind the times, right? Pastor's talking about gun smoke. <laughs> Greatest Western ever. Pew, 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 pew. Anyway, a future Babylon occupies two entire chapters in the Revelation. She will be rebuilt on the ancient site and be the religious and commercial capital of the world that will be ruled by Satan through the Antichrist during the time of Jacob's trouble. As a watchman, we see in chapter 18 of Revelation, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. And so these same words are applied to future Babylon past our own day. Oh, excuse me, verse 10. O oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel I have declared to you. Jeremiah, describing the destruction of Babylon, wrote, The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor, and now it is time to thresh her. In other words, she destroyed many nations. Now it's time for her to be destroyed. And when I talk about this, what's happening is God will you know, uh, uh, tap a nation and say, Hey, I, I'm going to use you right now to judge my people or to do something else to move history along. It's not carte blanche. Anybody know what that means? used to be a credit card. Uh, it's not carte blanche to do whatever you want, to be sinful and to, you know, uh, uh, you know, mistreat widows and orphans and things like that. And because they would go too far, God said, okay, Assyria, Babylon, I'm through with you. Now you're going to be judged. And so, uh, you know, God is always looking to nations to see, hey, are you going to acknowledge me and follow me or not? There was a time in Babylon, I don't want to get off on this, but I'm doing it, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, its king, this cruel king, became a Christian. There's a whole chapter, it's a tract that he wrote to the entire kingdom. It'd be like the President of the United States getting saved and saying, I want to hold a press conference and talk about Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and so Babylon had a high point, and then it fell back into ignoring God. Uh, I have declared to you, God trusted them to know his future plans. And in a sense, you need to think, hey, God has trusted us to know the future. It startles me that more Christians don't talk about the future. And not because it's right or wrong, but because non-believers, unbelievers are interested in the future right now because it looks bleak, right? I mean, it looks terrible. On every front, it seems like the end of the world. Jesus isn't going to end the world. He's going to save the world. He comes back when mankind is about to destroy itself and puts things right. 
You know a lot about your future too, don't you? About your inheritance in heaven, about your adoption, about uh, the, you know, the treasures that you're storing up, about many, many things that you can be joyous about. The last few verses of chapter 21 describe two other nations, Duma and Arabia. Arabia is a collection of small towns and cities. They were geographically between Judah and Babylon. Uh, the burden against Duma, verse 11, he calls to me out of Seir, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? Harold Bultima wrote, this brief burden is a burden to expositors. And that's because we don't know much about these nations at all. We do know that Seir is an alternate name for Edom because the mountains of Seir were given as a possession to Esau, Jacob's brother, and the descendants of Esau are the Edomites. And then the watchman said, verse 12, the morning comes, also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. An enemy has caused the Edomites to flee. They are encouraged to inquire of God. His answer will be to return and come back. Then verse 13 the burden against Arabia in the forest in Arabia you will lodge, O you traveling companies of Dedanites. O inhabitants of the land of Timah, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met whom he fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fall, and the remainder of the number of archers the mighty men of the people of Kedar will be diminished for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. And so this is a prediction that in one year, Arabia would be attacked. Refugees would seek, uh, flee seeking provisions and protection. Uh, I wonder if they prepared. You know, if, if Isaiah gave this prophecy, you just wonder sometimes how much the people actually heard it and prepared. Right now, there's a resurgence in the church of people saying, oh, we're going to go through the great tribulation. And, and for some reason, people are excited about that. You know, and they're saying we need to get people ready. But they're really not doing anything to get people ready. If you read verses, uh, chapters uh, 6 through 18 of the Revelation and, saw, and thought you were going to be on earth during that time, you would do something to be ready. Uh, you know, in terms of storing up a food, changing your life and your lifestyle and things like that. You wouldn't just, you know, say, yeah, we're going to go through it and it's no big deal. Uh, and so, you know, when, when God tells us something in the word, we, we should prepare for it. Uh, and so we prepare for the rapture by sharing the word of God and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry so more people can hear the gospel. That's our thing, right? It is, it is that people need to hear the gospel and get saved before, well, right away. And then as things will unfold, uh, the Lord will do his work. Uh, the Babylonians felt secure behind the walls they had built, so secure that they reveled while a determined enemy pressed upon them. Determined enemies press upon us, the world and the flesh and the devil. Feeling secure in Jesus, do I party like there's no tomorrow? Am I succumbing to the devil using the world to incite me to indulge my flesh? Or am I really preparing to see the Lord, spending time in his word with other Christians, sharing him, uh, giving to his work, uh, you know, those kinds of things that are just basic Christianity. Uh, the Lord just wants us to be basic Christianity on a basic level and share him, uh, and, and, you know, that's what we're to be about. You expect believers to live as if they will be in heaven today. 
Shouldn't surprise you when unbelievers act like unbelievers, but it should surprise you when believers act like unbelievers. Jerusalem acted like Babylon by trusting in their own preparations, including fortifying the wall. And so verse 1 of chapter 22, the burden against the valley of vision, what ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? Valley of vision is a reference to Jerusalem, although I don't know why. I remember one time in the Philippines when we had lunch on a flat rooftop patio. Uh, you know, that's in those areas like that. And in, Jeru- in Israel, they had those flat patios and you could go up there, especially at night, and enjoy uh, the cool air. The Jews weren't up there having a picnic, though they were watching for danger. You who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, your slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. Is this good or bad? It seems to be describing a bustling city whose armies have not been slain. God had many times supernaturally protected his chosen and against impossible odds. So on their patio roof, seeing an approaching enemy, they could have been secure in the Lord. That's the point of this whole passage. You didn't need to make any preparations except heart preparations and remain in love with me, trusting me, reaching out to me. I'll take care of you. Verse 3, all your rulers, however, have fled. They are captured by archers. All who are found in uh, you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Uh, Their leaders would be found and bound. That's not good. Verse 4, therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Isaiah gives him a run for his money. I can't tell you to weep more and to be bitterly weeping at that. All of us should be challenged to measure our compassion for the lost. Uh, what I mean is I don't like it when people say, oh, you know, you should cry now. Or, you know, how, how come you're not grieving properly? And, you know, people are just different. And so just worry about your own grief. But I'm not saying it's always true. But Christians, especially evangelical Christians, do have a reputation for lacking in compassion. We do not. Well, yeah, you do, yeah. And so just we, you know, just talk to the Lord. Say, Lord, am I, am I showing your compassion? It's not me. I mean, it's something that the Lord gives you. It's, it's his compassion. He who wept over Jerusalem and wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he wants to give you compassion, so ask him for it. Verse 5, it's a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls crying to the mountain, Elam, uh, Elam bore rather the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in an array at the gate. Little is written about Elam and Kerr. It seems like an attack comes out of nowhere. You ever felt ambushed spiritually? Uh, the devil just comes out of nowhere. He's playing a long game all the time. There's all kinds of temptations and trials and you're navigating around those on the narrow road and all of a sudden you're blindsided by something that you're completely unaware of or unprepared for, taken down into the ditch by the side of the narrow road, needing to climb back up. Uh, Luckily, blessedly, providentially, God has his grace for us to do that. Verse 8, he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day into the armor of the house of the forest, which is an armory they, they maintain. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. You gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. And you also made 
a, res a reservoir rather, between the two walls for the water of the old pool. There must have been a meeting to adopt strategies to combat the siege of the enemy that was occurring outside the wall. And these are silly physical things that the Jews would do in order to be protected. One guy just could have stood up and said, you know, here's the history of our people. We know that if we seek the Lord, even in this late hour, he's liable to forgive us in a way that gives us victory over the enemy. But this other guy over here says, now nah, I'm going to tear down my house and use it to fortify the wall near my house and I'll be safe. And, and you know, we are just prone as a people to, to want to do things that are physical and material rather than trust the Lord. We feel like it's not enough. You ever feel like when you say, I'll pray for you, you think, wow, that's really nothing. Oh no, that's everything. I'll pray for you. You need to see more of Jesus. The answer to you, you may need money, you may need this or that, but the answer to your problem is Jesus. Churches get caught in this all the time. Churches mean well. Somebody has a project in mind. It's, all, it's always a good project. You want to you have a bigger facility to minister to more people or even to your own people. You want to you know, have an outreach. You want to do that. And you think, how are we going to accomplish this? The only way we can see is to ask people for more money. And then you get into, well, how, how much are you really giving anyway? And then you have all of this kind of stuff. The average person gives some, and you have statistics, and, and pretty soon you're sitting there guilty, right? You're thinking, man, you know, uh, I, I don't need this. I get enough of this at work. And now my pastor's begging me for money. Uh, he, I, I couldn't leave church the other day until I wrote a check for my chair or something like that, you know. And so uh, we always turn to the flesh. We, you know, it's, it's a standard practice, you know. Very rarely do we say, let's just wait on the Lord. You know, let's wait on the Lord and see what he will do. The houses you broke down to fortify the wall, they tore up their homes. If you look at this devotionally, I challenge you to do this this week. Christians demolish their houses sometimes. The foolish woman tears down her house with her own hands, it says in one place. Men do it too. Many of us have destroyed our families by being selfish and going after things that uh, we had no business going after, or, uh, you know, just, there's a million ways of doing it. But tearing down your own house is no way to build up a house. Uh, and so be careful out there with your selfish pursuits, and, and do spiritual things, not material things. Christians regularly blow up their lives, and you think, what for? My son was just telling me about a, a, a guy we know who, you know, he checks in with him from time to time, he says, well, I'm, I'm divorced and I lost my job, uh, you know, as a Christian uh, business and stuff. And so, I mean, it's terrible, you know, people just blowing up their lives. But you did not look to the maker, nor do you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. Staying in devotional mode, look back on your life and you'll see times you look to the Lord with respect. You'll find other times that you went to the Lord, but your mind was already made up and you just wanted the rubber stamp. Uh, in a general sense that touches all of us, we frequently remind ourselves of the warning in the New Testament book of Galatians to the effect that having begun in the spirit, we try to continue the Christian life in our own flesh, applying our own wisdom. Verse 12, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, Isaiah is not saying that the Jews partied like there was no tomorrow while they were being besieged. 
They had been given to partying and festivities and all that one during times when the Lord said, hey, you're, you're uh, denying widows and orphans their rights. You're taking advantage of this. You're doing, living in idolatry. You need to repent, not revel. They said, uh, you know, you're not going to do anything to us because we have the temple and we're Jews. And then God says, yeah, I am. I'm bringing Babylon against you. And then they said, oh, my, you know, we, 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 you know we're going to get crushed. And so that's what's going on. Verse 14, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement, even to your death, says the Lord of hosts. This isn't a forfeiting of their salvation. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's a strong reminder that sin, even when forgiven, carries life consequences. If you murder somebody, that's going to have a consequence, right? You can't just say, well, I've been forgiven. You know, so that means nothing. Uh, it means a lot. Our friend Dennis Agajanian likes to say, you can't unscramble eggs, right? It captured kind of in a country way. It's, it's like, my life is a bunch of scrambled eggs now, uh, but the Lord can cook them and it can still be good, right? That kind of a thing. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, <laughs> country uh, wisdom there, go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house and say, uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to just tell you that Shebna, uh, bad steward, he spends all of his time building a monument to himself. It's a, a mausoleum for his death, and he gets replaced by Eliakim. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so many Christians, they want to build monuments to themselves, right? They want to have the plaques or the recognition. Ask yourself this, do I want recognition? And the answer should be no, because you want Jesus to be recognized. And how would you know if you wanted recognition? Are you bummed out when you don't get it? When you think, hey, I should be recognized, and you don't get recognized, and then you go on a campaign to be recognized, chances are you want recognition at that point. And so, you know, all you're doing is building a, a mausoleum to yourself. You, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a death thing. So let the Lord uh, do your building. You know, we're not building anything great. The Lord is building through us as his helpers. Uh, it'll be in that day, he'll call him, verse 20, he'll call on Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt, etc. Uh, remember, this is a prophecy made known to Hezekiah. It might have been the impetus for him to deal with Shebna. Isaiah might have been, uh, you know, uh, busting him and saying, hey, what's really going on? You need to get rid of this guy Shebna in favor of Eliakim. And so he'd have the key to the house of David. Verse 23, I'll fasten him as a peg in a secure place. He will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring, the posterity, the vessels of small quantity, from the cups to the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and will be cut down and fall, and the burden that was uh, on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. We sometimes use inanimate objects to describe people. We say, oh, that guy's a rock, meaning he's solid and dependable. Eliakim would be a peg and a throne, meaning he could bear the burdens of his office as he represented his master. Shebna would be the peg of verse 25, cut off. Next time I'm asked to fill out a letter of recommendation, they always ask, is there something more we should know about this person? I'm going to write there, this person is a peg. Means you're, it's like in those days they didn't have all these fancy cabinets and stuff. They just had pegs and everything was hanging on a peg. And I mean heavy stuff, you know, and you could trust the peg, right? 
unless it got cut off the way the Lord cut off Shebna. And so it's a really solid thing. So, if, you know, if that's, you should use that to say, man, I need to tell you that you've been a peg to me. And then just walk away. <laughs> Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Apostle Paul quotes this in the great chapter of the New Testament where he explains that believers will be resurrected from the dead or raptured. It's 1 Corinthians 15. He uses it to argue that if there is no resurrection or rapture, if there's no eternal life in heaven, you might as well abandon yourself to seeking physical pleasure in this life. There would certainly be no reason to sacrifice and suffer as a believer for a future that did not exist. When he's talking in 1 Corinthians, he said, hey, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. And the commentators say, yeah, he had fierce opposition, but uh, it may be that he actually fought beasts because they did that to Christians. Remember, you know, in those days, they fed them to lions. And, and so uh, it could be that they put Paul in the arena. Man, what a, what a top of the card event that would be, you know. Tonight, Paul the Apostle against a, uh, uh, I can't think, Wolverine, you know, and stuff. And he says, hey, why would a guy do that? If there wasn't a heaven, if this was all false, it's, it's insane. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The last part of that is fine, for tomorrow we die. We're not afraid to die. It is gain. Death only frightens those who have their mind exclusively in this world. But we need to erase, let us eat and drink, and replace it with things of the Lord. And it could be, there are many things. Let me be transformed by the renewing of my mind, not conformed to the world, for tomorrow I die. Let me serve the Lord as a steward in his household, for tomorrow I die. Let me suffer with patient endurance, for tomorrow I die. George Whitefield said, take care of your life, and the Lord will take care of your death. We know that a glorious future does await the believer. Today or tomorrow we may die, but death is not the end. As Chicago sang, it's only the beginning of what I want to feel forever.